invite you to open your Bibles to Paul's letter to, uh, to Philemon. It's a short letter, in fact, one of the shortest in all of the Bible, only 335 words in the Greek, although for a very few of you, I assume, are reading out of the Greek. Neither will I be. Uh, but if you need to uh, cheat and look in the index, that's fine. Or if you uh, have some mastery of that, you'll find it uh, stuck between uh, Titus and Hebrews, right before the book of Hebrews, which is a little easier to find. This morning we begin our summer series, which we're probably using that word a little bit loosely, um, but as primarily Camper and I will be focusing on the postcards from God, the single chapter uh, books of the Bible, uh, but we'll also be joined this summer uh, by others that will be bringing the word from the uh, shortest books in the Bible. Taylor will be focusing probably on, on Jonah, Ken Bush uh, later this summer. Uh, others will be focusing as well, but we, God has spoken to us not only in volume, uh, but speaks to us with great volume, even in those things that are sometimes easily overlooked. And so our, our focus this morning, uh, resonating with the fact that many will go on vacation and send postcards, we don't want to miss the postcards that God has given us either. Philemon. Chapter 1, because that's all we got. Um, <laughs> verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that, by your goodness, in order that your goodness might not be com by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of the fact that you owe me even your own self. Yet, brother, 
I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends his greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow worker. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us through uh, your servant Paul, through these words, even as we have the opportunity to hear this private correspondence. Bless us that we might not only see and hear what you would have us to see, but ultimately that we would also see Jesus, for all of your grace points to him. Bless us, we pray, in Christ. Amen. In a shop that deals in collectibles, the inventory included an assortment of personal letters that were penned by some of the more famous and some of the otherwise infamous uh, characters in American history. And among their inventory were some that were particularly notable. One was a handwritten thank you note written by Abraham Lincoln to a woman who had apparently hosted he and Mrs. Lincoln for dinner. And so Lincoln writing this very graciously as his reputation, true to his reputation to, uh, to really engage people and to warm the hearts of the people that were in his life. Another letter that was slightly different in tone was by another president, uh, Harry Truman, a rather terse note that Harry wrote uh, to someone who had apparently criticized his daughter's piano player. Harry, whose nickname was Give Him Hell Harry, I didn't read the note, but I understand he's true to his nature as well. And there were an assortment of others, including a letter from Sirhan Sirhan, the assassin of Robert Kennedy. And then all of these were um, for sale. Some of them were, them were well preserved. The Lincoln letter not only was well preserved, but was, had been framed. And, and all of these, obviously, a shop were for sale. And many of them were going for hundreds of dollars. And the letter from Truman was going for thousands of dollars. And Lincoln's letter was going for tens of thousands of dollars. It's people who are interested in history and collectibles uh, are uh, excited about purchasing and having some of these things in their own collections. And as I remember reading about that shop and of those letters, it, it dawned on me that I, it's just hard for me to imagine that any of these guys, when they sat down to write these letters, would have any idea, not only of the wider audience that these personal notes would have, because they were written for very specific occasions, but the value that they would go for hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of dollars is the value that would be placed on these simple notes. And it's the same when I think of the Apostle Paul as he sat down to write this personal note to a personal friend asking for a personal favor. There's, it, it's, he really would, it's, it's hard to imagine that he had any idea it's a wide breadth of reading this letter would have had. And perhaps not even necessarily of the incredible value that it would have to so many. 
Now, I know it's a letter that's in the Bible, and we tend to think, well, you know, he's an apostle. He's, you know, a lot of things that are covered. It's not the way the inspiration of the scriptures work. Nobody sat down. None of the apostles, none of the prophets, they didn't ever sit down and say, okay, this one's for the Bible. They had intended purposes, and God in his provision preserved these things, and then through, as they were circulated through the church, and, and, and we, that's a whole other message, and we'll be here for a long time if I explain the whole canonicity process. But just to be say is, that's not the way it works. And, and yet, we find tremendous value in this little note that the apostle has written. Before we look at the primary thrust of the letter, we, it's, it's helpful for us to consider the story uh, behind the writing of this letter. Paul wrote it during his first imprisonment. Uh, Paul had been, was, would be uh, imprisoned on a handful of occasions uh, through the scriptures. This was during his first imprisonment, and it was different than the other ones because in his first imprisonment in Rome, he was not held in a jail cell or in a dungeon as he would be in subsequent imprisonments, but apparently he was able to rent a room and seemingly come and go as he pleased, except that he was chained to a guard 24-7. Now, I'm sure, sure the guards would get you know, weekends off and somebody else would come in for the relief shift, but Paul, although he had a, an incredible amount of freedom for somebody who was arrested, um, he was in chain and chained constantly to, uh, uh, to a guard. Now, in subsequent, uh, Paul would be uh, released from this imprisonment a few months after writing this, he would be rearrested a few years later, and in those cases, he would be either in a dungeon or in a jail cell, and eventually, upon one of his arrests, he would be in a dungeon and jail cell awaiting for his execution. But in this case, he was relatively comfortable for somebody who was in prison. And, but while Paul was in prison, in addition to coming and going, he also took the time and he wrote a handful of letters known as his prison epistles. And we have some of them preserved in our scriptures, the book of Ephesians, the book of Philippians, the book of Colossians. All of those were written during Paul's first imprisonment. He used his time and would think about the things of God, God's word, and write to encourage and to instruct and to correct the church. And apparently after he had written the letter to the church, uh, to the Colossian church, Paul, realizing he was going to be sending this, also decided that he would write a personal note to one of the leaders in the Colossian church, a man who was a friend of his, even though Paul himself had not planted this church, a, a wealthy businessman that probably Paul had encountered at some point in Rome or somewhere when Paul was laboring in, in a merchant-friendly city. Uh, but he, he wrote this letter to the man named Philemon and to his family. As we see at the very beginning, Paul writes this to Philemon, his beloved fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, who most scholars would believe is Philemon's wife, and to Archippus. Uh, and he writes that, uh, who is probably um, Philemon and, and uh, Aphia's son. And, and he's writing this personal letter, and he's giving thanks to them for the church that meets in her house, which is the Colossian church. But it was a separate letter that he wrote that he, after he had written out his theological paper that he wanted to write the personal note. See, a lot of the letters that Paul has, in fact, every other letter other than Philemon, Paul, that we have, Paul wrote with the intention of being read in the church and circulated to other churches in that region to be studied and to be discussed. And we have the best 
systematic theology books ever written, written by the Apostle Paul, with the exception of this one. This one was not, there's no indication that this was intended to be widely read. This was just a personal note to his personal friend, Philemon. The reason he was writing this note, and I suspect the reason that he was writing this particularly to Philemon and not to the church as a whole, because he was writing about a matter that was personal to Philemon and to some extent not even the business of the church as a whole at the time. See, while Paul was imprisoned in, in Rome, he somehow came in contact with a fugitive who had been hiding out in Rome, which was the largest city in the world at that time. The fugitive was uh, Onesimus. And Onesimus had been a slave of Philemon, that whether Paul knew him from previous occasion or subsequent conversation that took place, he realized he knew the guy who Onesimus had run away from. We, we don't know, but all we know from this is that Onesimus was a slave who was on the run hiding out from uh, his master and indications are also that before he left, he'd also stolen whether money or some goods to you know, pawn him off and be able to, uh, to live for at least for a time while he was on the run. And we don't know how Paul and Onesimus ran into one another. Some scholars believe that since he was on the run that somehow Onesimus had been apprehended and then in an ironic providence of God, he was temporarily chained to the same guard that Paul was chained to. Others, and I tend to think of it as more likely, is that Paul was, ran into Onesimus out in the marketplace at Rome at some point. And whether, again, whether they just struck up a friendship at that point and information came later, whether Paul recognized him and actually had met him before. We just don't know those details. All we know is they connected, and in their conversations, Paul led Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ and into eternal life. And in their conversations, Paul also now is sending Onesimus back. He tells him, look, you need to make things right. You need to go back to Philemon. And the purpose of this note is that Paul, as he's sending Onesimus back, was going to also write this note that Onesimus would carry with himself and give to his master, to Paul's friend. And when we look at this letter, it is just packed with practical instructions and insights. We look at this and we can see that there is an ethical dimension here just in the fact that Paul was sending Philemon back. It's practical because at, at times, and there are people who are new Christians who have been told that they are new creations, wonder if they have a need to pay back the debts that they accrued in their previous life. And it's a, a real question for a number of people, and I certainly understand why they want to get out from the shackles of whatever their debt may be. I've heard sometimes people that work in prison ministries or people who are, uh, work in prisons get very frustrated with the jailhouse conversion saying, well, you know, the guy who robbed the bank and shot everybody down, you know, he's dead, I, but I'm now a new creation, so I should get out. 
There's a confusion about the whole idea of the new creation and what responsibility that we bear about our past when we become believers. And through this, we see the illustration. Paul's saying, look, you've, you know, even as a new creation, we have a responsibility to make it right. And he sends him back to his master. And yet that itself creates a conundrum for many people because Paul's sending him back not to jail and not to pay his debts, but sending him back into slavery. And so people have asked for years, does this illustrate that the Bible condones slavery? Sadly, many people through history have interpreted it as saying, yes, it does. And yet to translate it that way would be, or to understand it that way would be not only wrong, but it would be a warped and missing the entire point of what Paul was writing. I don't have time to deal with it in full this morning. But what Paul does here effectively undermines the whole notion of slavery. And if believers through history had followed it, we wouldn't have the heinous history that our country is continuing to wrestle with today because it would have collapsed before it got started. But while it's not my primary point, I do need to touch on it a little bit because it's just like this, this big obstacle for some people that can't hear the primary point unless they understand that this is not an endorsement or a validation of slavery. And so what we need to understand is this, is that the word slave here that is used for um, Onesimus is, is the word doulos in Greek, and it, it can be interpreted or translated in a couple of different ways. Slave is certainly appropriate. Bond servant, some of your translations indicate that. But what we do know is that when we think of as slavery, and what Paul is addressing Onesimus' situation are entirely different. When we think of slavery, we think of somebody getting kind of kidnapped and then forced into service and perpetual ownership uh, of their lives. And the Bible is quite clear in speaking against that. In Exodus 21, 16, the scripture says this, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. I don't know how some of our forefathers missed that one, but that seems pretty explicit, doesn't it? And then even Paul, as he's writing his letter to Timothy, he includes those who would own slaves as being in the same category as those who strike their parents, murderers, perverts, liars, and perjurers. And so that part reflects not only what the Old Testament law declares, but Paul's attitude about it. And so it's quite obvious that Paul having that attitude about slavery and Paul being zealous to continue with the law and yet realize he's freed from the bondage of it, he's, he's freed to, he's not then going to send Onesimus back into slavery. What most scholars believe what's taking place here is Onesimus would be what we would consider an indentured servant. At the time, the way that the Roman system worked is that some people, as they racked up debts that they couldn't pay back, and they had no way of not only paying their debts, but couldn't uh, even really provide for their families, the only thing they had left was themselves, their labor. And so they were allowed to sell themselves to a wealthy person who would pay off their debts. And then they would be in the employ of that person for a time that was agreed upon 
that would pay back the debts. And so the person was provided for, the family was provided for, they had a way out of their debts. Uh, the wealthy person had somebody to do their chores, but the person never, never owned them. And even that's probably not the ideal. God didn't create us to own one another in any shape or form in the original creation. He says have dominion over the earth, not dominion over one another. But this was the Roman system, and it's very different than we tend to think of. And the slavery itself that we tend to think of is, is not even in view here. But what Paul was doing is sending somebody back who probably stole some money. But even if he hadn't stolen money, his very fact that he ran away before his debt had been paid, he'd stolen himself. He'd stolen from his master by the fact that he was running away. And Paul sending him back tells us, look, there is an ethic of being a believer that we need to be above reproach. We also see an evangelistic aspect in, in, this, in this letter. Paul writes the statement, perhaps for this reason, the fact that he'd become a believer, that's why he went away from you for a while. I mean, it's the epitome of you know, what he did, he meant for evil. And yet God superintends everything and he works everything out. And it's an implication to us and to Philemon that the salvation of the peoples of the earth and the individuals are far more important than anything, even our own economic well-being. And so while Philemon was out some money for a time, Paul is saying, yeah, but isn't it more important that he is now a believer? And then he uses a play on words here, kind of related to that, when he says, you know, he used to be useless to you, and now he's useful. The word Onesimus, Onesimus, the name literally means useful. And so what Paul actually says, if you're reading the Greek, is, well, he used to be useless to you. He's now Onesimus to you. And he's just solidifying the relationship and the unity that we have in Christ. And so there's an evangelistic ethic here. But as important as those things are, they are not the heart, and they are not even the intent of why the Apostle Paul wrote this letter. Because while ethical aspects are important and evangelistic aspects are important, this letter was written specifically for the relational aspect of our life. And in the relational aspect of it, it was written even more specifically for the purpose of providing for us, as well as for Philemon, a beautiful portrait of reconciliation. And that's the heart of what this letter is. And it speaks to us because every one of us is in need of reconciliation at one point or another in our lives. And most of us, we're in need of some form of reconciliation at all points of our lives with some person in our lives, different people, different times. That may be that we are the ones who are in need of being forgiven, like Onesimus. It may be that we are the ones who are in need of forgiving, like Philemon. And for all who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are living in relationship with everybody else, we are constantly having the opportunity to serve as the Apostle Paul, being the one who is encouraging peace between brothers and sisters in Christ and peace between people in general. And what Paul provides for us here is an illustration, an outline of the reconciliation process, the way that God has designed it. The first thing that we see here is that there is an identification that Paul clearly has with Philemon. He's sending them back, but he's saying, I'm sending my own heart. I would have liked to have kept him, but I didn't want to force anything. You, you see the relationship in the, in the language that, 
Paul is using here, and in verse 17, very specifically, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul is identifying with the one who is in need of being forgiven. At the same time, he's identifying with the one who is in need of extending the forgiveness. Now, the Apostle Paul certainly was well aware of this. He had plenty of reason for need of being forgiven. And as one who's locked up in prison for for his faith and people that have betrayed him, he has plenty of opportunities and need to extend forgiveness to other people as well. But part of the process is to identify uh, with the person either side, both sides, uh, and Paul clearly demonstrates that in this particular letter. In fact, he begins the letter sort of with an identification. This is the only letter where Paul doesn't refer to himself as an apostle. He refers to himself as a prisoner or a slave for Jesus Christ. And even in that subtle beginning, it's it's a tip-off of what's going to happen later. After the identification that uh, occurs, Paul really becomes an illustration of a vital theological concept known as imputation. Imputation simply means to put to account. And we see Paul saying, if he owes you anything, credit it to my account. If he owes you anything, I mean, I thought, I mean, that's already clear, isn't it? That there is a debt. Paul is is doing something here that is very important that we... Uh, that we understand. He's actually providing for an opportunity for Philemon to swallow the debt, which is necessary for forgiveness at all. In fact, it's the point that Jesus makes when he uses, gives his illustration through the parable of the unmerciful servant. An awareness of we're all in debt. We all have debt. And most of us have people who are indebted to us in some way or another. Now, again, our tendency is to begin to think monetarily, and I think that's the genius of Jesus' illustration because we naturally go to money. But the reality is relationships, any offense to you or to me, anytime we are offended, it is a debt. Somebody is taking something from us. Whether it's something tangible, as is in this case, or whether we feel it's our reputation or the respect we deserve, whenever there's an offense, the nature of an offense is that we feel something has been taken from us. Now, most of them are so petty that we are able to overlook them, but whenever we feel the offense, it's because we're feeling the weight of something having been taken. That's why the Lord's Prayer, Jesus uses the phrase, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Having grown up Lutheran and using the, uh, the, uh, not, not using the debts when I first became a Presbyterian, I thought, these Presbyterians are just obsessed with money. Um, it wasn't until later when I realized that it's, debt is not just about money. It's, it's relational capital that we all are exchanging constantly. And so Paul is inviting him to consider his, what is it that has been taken from you? that you think that you can't live without, that you can't swallow the debt, or maybe you will swallow the debt, but Paul doesn't put it on him that you must swallow the debt. He says, as he's identifying, amputation, credit his debt to my account. Paul is assuming the debt, and then as one 
friend who grew up in a Jewish home said is, and Paul clearly had a Jewish mother because he lays on a heck of a guilt trip. <laughs> Put it on my account. But, yeah, let's not even talk about the fact that I led you to Christ, that without me you'd be going to hell, and so you owe me your whole life. But let's put that aside. We won't talk about that right now. And then I love the fact that he says this in such gentle words later on, and prepare a room for me because in a couple months I'm going to come show up. And if things are not right, it's going to be really, really awkward, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of, but never mind any of that. Let's just deal with the issue at hand. And, and, and the whole idea is imputation. It's the crediting of account. And we need to understand this because it's a picture of what Jesus Christ does for us as well. And the reason Paul ex understood that is because he understood he'd experienced that very thing. There is a significant difference between imputation and impartation. And I, I've used it before, but it helps me to process. The difference is that it's like the difference between your credit card and your debit card. When I pull out my debit card and I spend it, it is my money in the account. I already possess it. I already own it. When I use a credit card, the store couldn't care less that it's not my money. It might as well be my money. It is given to me to use as if it is my money, but it belongs to the bank through which I have my credit card. And the righteousness that we are credited with in Jesus Christ is the credit card. It belongs all to Jesus, but it is credited to us as if it is our own. And yet what is called sometimes the great exchange of the gospel, and we tend to neglect this aspect of it, is Jesus then gets my credit card right after college. <laughs> that means don't try to use it because they might come and arrest you because it is racked up, it is overdrawn, it is a debt. See, in the great exchange, in the imputation, we get Christ's righteousness credited to us and Jesus gets our sin credited to him. And Paul is illustrating that whole process because one of the things that this letter demonstrates, even though it doesn't explicitly say it, is that for forgiveness to take place, the debt must be paid. Somebody has to swallow the debt, has to assume the debt, and the debt must always be paid. It's not a matter of just forget it, because if you've been offended, if somebody owes you and you say, oh, just forget it, that's fine, but you're swallowing the debt. You're saying, I have more than I need, and one of the things that we as Christians need to be reminded is that Jesus Christ says his grace is sufficient for us. And so there's very few things, if anything, that we are able, would have to say, I can't live without it if we have Jesus Christ, because he says, I'll more than make up for it. It may not be exactly the same, but you will have everything you need and even more than that that is found in me. There are times, though, we recognize, and Jesus recognizes this in the whole need, and he speaks of reconciliation, that whatever it is, not only for the sake of justice, but it is so painful, and we just can't get past that, and somebody still has to pay the debt. So it may be the person who took it from us, or as in this case, the person who is taking on the imputation, Paul saying, I will assume that debt for myself. And ultimately, for anyone who is in Christ, it is Jesus who has taken our debt upon himself to the cross. And the payment of the debt is the theological concept known as propitiation. I know some of you are sitting here thinking, look, I just got past imputation as a theological concept. Now you're throwing this propitiation word out to me? It's what I do, sorry. Um, it's Propitiation, while a big and difficult word, in its simplest 
expression simply means the satisfaction of the debt payment being made, or in a theological sense, it is the wrath of God that is poured out. Because there is an imputation and a substitution that Jesus has taken our debt, God poured his wrath out on his son rather than on us. Paul here is illustrating that same thing when he's saying, I'm willing to pay the debt. If you feel the need to exact the punishment, if you feel the need to, you can't swallow the debt, you need to then put it on my account. I won't go on for long, I don't have a lot, but I think it's important for us to understand that concept so that we understand not only what's going on in this letter, but what God is telling us, illustrating for us as we relate to one another and to other people in our lives. So there was a story that I remember reading a number of years ago. Tyler, Texas, I think it was in the late 1980s. It was a man who woke up in the middle of the night Hungry, made his way toward the kitchen at his home. And on his way to the kitchen, he passed his den, and, and he noticed that the lid of the terrarium was off. Usually what was in the terrarium was his pet eight-foot boa constrictor. And so realizing he needs to get the snake back in, he started looking. And after about a 10 to 12-minute search, this sudden shock of a terrifying thought popped into his head. So he shot up the stairs into the nursery where their newborn child had been laid to rest just a few hours earlier. And in the crib where they had placed the child was a snake. No child, but the snake with a large bulge in its midsection. And understandably, distraught and in anguish, the man screamed and ran to his garage where he grabbed a hatchet that he used for pruning the trees in his yard. And he comes back into the room and in a vain hope to possibly get his son out of the belly of the snake, he starts chopping towards the head of the snake and down, leaving margin to get but it was all in vain. The, the child had already been consumed. The child was already dead. And when he realized what had taken place, screaming more, his wife now awake and screaming, neighbors also having been wakened by the screams and police having been called. But the man, had just in a moment of rage, just began hacking and hacking and hacking and chopped that snake up to nothing. When the police came and they took him to a psychiatric hospital in their community. But the amazing thing is, is that not one of the neighbors, no one in town who heard the story, faulted this guy for hacking up the snake. Nobody called the animal rights activist. Nobody fined him. He never went to jail for, uh, for destroying this exotic and protected animal. Everybody understood the snake had swallowed his child and the snake needed to die. We have a God who is a father who while never becoming unstable but in a righteous anguish and anger is furious at the snake of sin that continues to swallow his children. 
And the full force of God's wrath is to be poured out on that sin that is destroying. The problem being is that his children are also the perpetrators of the sin. And so God takes the full force of the wrath, similar to this man who was just hacking at this snake that had destroyed his child, but God turns it on himself, turns it on his own son, and the full force of God's wrath destroys his own son. So not in a point of vain, but so that God's children can actually live. See, the Apostle Paul understanding that nature of what God has done to bring about reconciliation between him and Jesus and man and Jesus and man and God through Jesus, and it is also to be the example and the model and the foundation that is the reconciliation principle between man and man. And the Apostle Paul understanding that enters into this relationship with his friend. He was far more of a friend to Philemon than he was to Onesimus. And yet now, as it happens, that both Onesimus and Philemon, who had a business and an ownership relationship, now also had the same spiritual father. But ultimately, we all have the same father if we are believers in Christ. And that demanded that he not hold his brother in slavery. That he not hold his brother in slavery even to his own debt. The debt must be paid. And it must be swallowed or at least recognize somebody else will swallow it. See, we need to recognize that God, through this letter, is reminding us that we, we live in a broken world. We have broken relationships. We hurt. We fail one another. We go into debt with one another. We steal from one another. Even if it's not in tangible ways, we just do that, whether overtly or by the ways that we just don't, are inconsiderate. There's constant debt, but this is a reinforcement of the fact that we are constantly called to be reconciled. Because while the doctrines that Paul illustrates here are the bullet points of the gospel, reconciliation is the closest thing that flows from the heart of the gospel itself. Reconciliation between man and God, but then because of that reconciliation between man and man. Reconciliation between you and whoever it is that's hurting you. Recognition, reconciliation between you and whoever you have hurt. Paul is laying this out for us to show us the priority, the preeminence, and the procedure by which it takes place. Jonathan Edwards, in his brilliance, even when he was only 19 years old, in his resolutions, one of them that I find the most challenging and comes to mind quite often is this. He says every time somebody sins against him, he uses it as an opportunity to repent. And he elaborates by saying, because when I think of whatever it is that was taken from me, and then I think of what I have done to belittle the glory of God or walk against God or to offend God, it, the comparison is nothing. No matter what they have done to me, it never compares to what I have done to God. And so therefore, any offense against him he used as an opportunity for himself to repent. doesn't mean he was against justice. He just recognized he himself was guilty. And we look at this letter and need to be reminded we all are Onesimus. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. So we not only violate God, but our sin is often against one another. But we are also all Philemon. Because we live in this world, the people have hurt us, and we need to be the ones who are able to forgive and to know the resource that God provides for us, which is his grace through Christ, his provision, when we feel that we can't forgive. And as the body of Christ that are placed to be priests in this church and in this world, we are all in the role of Paul, where we promote truth and justice 
and reconciliation, but ultimately recognizing that that, we want to see it most beautifully, it is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Father, bless us, we pray, as we thank you for this letter. For you have given it to us, not only to peep into a private conversation, but you've given it to us to help us to understand how we are to relate to one another, how we may relate to you. May you show us Jesus. May you open our eyes of our hearts to be aware not only of that which we feel we have been wronged with, but how we have wronged others in you. And may we trust Jesus has paid for it all. Bless us with this freedom. We might be a people that recognizes that in freedom sometimes there is slavery, but even what seems like slavery, there is freedom when we are in Christ. That we might live to your glory. We pray in Jesus. Amen.